this morning then is going to, as I've said, the last three verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We move through this Gospel, immense Gospel, and of course next time we'll probably uh, intend to go on to uh, chapter 3, which is full of some amazing things and some great teachings and some challenging things with regards to being born again. But we're looking at the last three verses of John chapter 2. I'll read them again quickly. It says, Now when he, which of course is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man should give us, really, some kind of trepidation. Really. The fact that Jesus, the Lord of glory, knows all men, and not only knows them, but knows what is in them. He knows what is in you, and he knows what is in me. Jesus had previously cleared the temple of those making it a house of merchandise. And he had baffled the Jews in answer to their demand for a sign of authority for his actions by stating that if they destroy this temple, he would raise it up in three days. Their answer was correct in that the temple made of stone had indeed taken 46 years to complete. But as this text reveals, Jesus was speaking of his body. That true and most glorious temple, which they would in the near future cry out to be destroyed. The disciples, too, at the time were slow to understand. You find that a number of times in the scriptures. But after the resurrection, we are told that they remembered. They remembered that he had said these things to them and how they believed the scripture. And it actually says in that verse 22 there that they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. See, they heard these things and they believed the scripture. These things are very important. He believed the scripture. It tells us how important the Bible is. That they remembered that this had been previously written, that this would be happening. The zeal for his house had consumed him. How remarkable then. It is to see in these verses that we've just read the deity of Christ. The deity. Jesus Christ is God. See, no mortal man has power over his own life. No mortal man has power over his own life. He cannot even sustain himself without the provision of God. What can we do without food or water? If if the water was to dry up, as they keep telling us, you know, God forbid you use your hose pipe. But all the, the um, reservoirs are, are, are lower enough. What control over that do we have? Apart from hose pipe bands. How do we stop the water receding? And what about food? What will we do without food or water? What will we do without the seasons that we have? 
in which there is the seed time and the harvest. Is the, is the helm of those things in the hands of men or in the hands of God? See, we are absolutely dependent upon the goodness of God, who it says in Matthew 5, 45, makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. But here... The Lord is absolute. He's absolute. He says, I will raise it up. Both his own life, death, and resurrection are in his hands. And his power is over all. There is no doubt here. He says, I will raise it up. Not only that, but he says, I will raise it up in three days. He is in control not only of the fact that his life is laid down, the fact that it's going to be raised up, I will raise it. I will raise it in the time that I say I will raise it. I will do it within three days. Only the sovereign God who rules over all has the authority and the power to say and to do such things. See, we are exhorted by James, aren't we? That we are always in our day-to-day -day business and the plans for our lives. We are always to submit them unto the will of God. Our lives are a vapour, it says. Yeah. You're going to plan to do that? You're going to do this? You're going to go there? Well, we ought never to presume on what we will and what we will not do. For the heart that's in our chest and the breath that's in our lungs this morning, even our very lives themselves belong to Him. They will start, they will have their duration, and they will have their end, all according to His own will and purpose. He controls and has power over it all. And so then, looking at these verses, the Lord is tarrying in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, which lasted around seven days. At this time, at the beginning of our text, we read that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. In Isaiah 35, verse 3 to 6, we read uh, of, of these, these signs that the Messiah is to fulfil. Isaiah 35, 3-6 Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. For the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert hundreds of years before. And then again, if you look to Isaiah 61, we find that great prophetic and messianic statements that Jesus declares to be fulfilled in himself 
in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. Such as preaching the good news of salvation. Healing the brokenhearted. Proclaiming liberty to captives. And opening the prison to them that are bound. And here, as we just read in chapter 35, we are told that this Messiah will perform great physical miracles, such as opening the eyes of the blind, the deaf ears, causing the dumb to sing, and those who are lame to leap like deer. All these things we see fulfilled by Jesus. You must be thinking of many a time where Jesus did these things, paralysed, leapt for joy, because they could walk. The deaf could hear, and those that were blind could see. So they were fulfilled by Jesus. And the Jews, in their expectation of their Messiah, were waiting, who they were waiting for, would include these signs. They were the Messiah that they were waiting for, they were they were believing that he would be proven, if you like, or shown to be who he was by these signs. That these would attest to who he was. The scriptures that we've read in these three verses here in John, when he talks about these signs and wonders, he says, many believed in his name because they saw the signs and wonders which he did. But we don't have any details here. They're not, they're not given about what particular signs they were. But we're told regarding Jesus' life and ministry, again in Matthew 8 this time, it says, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his mother, his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick. And we know that Jesus did these kind of things. This is what he's talking about, and they saw him do them, and they believed upon him. Listen also to what Peter said to the men of Israel in that first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Speaking to the men of Israel, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Jesus performed signs, wonders and miracles in the very midst of these people. So we've just read there. He was attested to you. He's speaking to the men of Israel. He was attested to you by signs, wonders and miracles. And it says that they knew this right well. As you yourselves know. Peter said, you know this. You're not ignorant of this. You know this. Very thing that I'm saying. That he was attested to you by signs and wonders. And you know this. But what did he go on to say? Even though they knew it. Even though they saw it. Even though they knew right well. They nevertheless, in lawlessness and wickedness, 
took Jesus, crucified him, and put him to death. There are times when a husband or a wife will do special things for their spouse. At least, we hope that's the case. You know, maybe cook a nice meal, take them out to a place they've long wanted to visit, or, or buy something as a gift that has had, you know, a lot of thought put behind it, something like that. It can be said that, that these things are extra tokens, which emphasise our love and appreciation for the other person. Times where we may want to show or prove our love in physical ways. This is good, isn't it? A lot of blank faces there thinking, I wish my other half would do these things a little bit more. But it is, it's a good thing. But what if these things were constantly demanded by the other person? What if your wife or husband was always seeking token after token in order for them to know that you love them? What if that was the case? It's always wanting something from you, some gift, some token, some action. In those quiet times of life, maybe, maybe the busy times, or those times that we may speak of or call the normalcies of life, when things are moving along in a normal way, an everyday kind of life. Is love shown to be less real because there are no extravagant gestures? I would even go so far as to say that even in the throes of early romance, that true love isn't necessarily involved or proven in flowers or chocolates or grand gestures. <clears throat> love is forged over time. And through the hot fires of life, when the hammers of adversity strike, love is a decision. It's a decision you make, rather than, or at least over and above, those warm, fuzzy feelings that sometimes you have inside. So you might think, why am I saying this? Well, surely it's the same with the Lord, isn't it? The constancy of seeking signs and wonders from his hand. Surely this is superficial. If none come, if we see no signs or wonders or miracles from God that we constantly seek, if we don't see any, surely it's just a skin-deep, superficial romance that dries up when the gifts stop flowing and the living begins, and the working into relationship is tested. That's what Jesus says, you keep seeking signs all the time. And in John 12, 37, it says, Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. 
And so then it goes on to say in these verses that Jesus didn't commit himself to them. Didn't commit himself to these people who would start to follow him just because of what they'd seen. Because the proof here is saying that it doesn't matter that you've seen miracles, that doesn't make you a believer. And if you constantly seek after those things to keep you believing, it's superficial, it's skin deep. You don't stop loving your spouse because you're going through a hard time. Because you don't see those grand <coughs> gestures of love or the romance. Or perhaps they don't cook a meal for you or take you out. In a rough time, surely that's when love is proven the most. <coughs> Jesus didn't commend or commit himself to them. Because he knew all men. See, they saw them. They saw these signs and wonders. They say that they believed. But Jesus didn't commit himself to them. That is, he didn't, he didn't trust them. He didn't put his trust in them. He didn't put his confidence in them. He didn't allow them into his inner circle. He didn't become close with them. Or even spend that much time with them. These were those who believed in him due to witnessing those signs and wonders that he performed. But as previously noted, all who saw such things, even though they may have been amazed at the time, ultimately were only mesmerised by his hands, rather than pierced through by his word. Like those thousands who were fed miraculously by a handful of loaves and small fish, what happened with them? They came back. Why? Because their stomachs were empty. And the sign served largely to provoke them to take Jesus by force to make him king. Why? Because he miraculously fed them. This must be the prophet that had been spoken of previously. Who would come to deliver Israel. Bringing back the land full of milk and honey. Delivering them from Roman tyranny. Giving them back the good life. See, they're gods with their bellies. They were going to come and they were going to make this man king by force. Because they wanted the good life back. They wanted the old Israel back. But they didn't believe in him for the right reason. They believed in him for selfish reasons. As Paul says in Philippians, their God is their stomachs. Because they wanted them full. Cast your gaze forward to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. As he set his face like flint to the cross. Crowds of people met him, throwing down their garments to make a pathway for the Son of David, crying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Only a short time later, Jesus stood there before them, battered, mangled, mocked, <coughs> bloody, and humiliated. These same inhabitants were crying out for him to be crucified. 
one of his closest friends. Peter, whilst vehemently <coughs> denying that he would ever betray him and that he would even go to G go with Jesus to death if need be, out of the very same mouth by which such fresh water appeared to Paul only hours later the bitter salt water of cursing and betrayal spewed forth as he lied about even knowing Jesus to save his own neck. And let us not only portray Peter as a betrayer, for we're told, aren't we, by Mark in his Gospel account, that all the disciples forsook him and fled. Let me ask you a question. Think about yourself. Would you have lied and fled that night? Would I? I think it's possible that we would. See, these, uh, like Peter, he had this bravado. Not me. I love him. How many of us could say that? I love him. Not me. But they actually spent three, three and a half years by his side. I don't know about you, but I've never seen somebody born blind have their eyes open. I've never seen somebody who was born paraplegic be able to walk. Never seen anybody raised from the dead. Never seen the North Sea on my holidays as a child in Mablethorpe split so I could walk through them. <coughs> never seen such things. These people did. Maybe not splitting of the sea, but they saw great miracles by the hands of Jesus. And yet all of them, at the time in which he needed them the most, they fled. I can't see that many of us would be any different. Because we're all out to save our own necks. That's why they wanted to take him and make him king, because they wanted to save their necks from the Romans to get back the life that they have had. But when it comes down to it, are we going to say of our own skin, just like they did? So in this verse then, he says, Jesus didn't commit himself to them, because he knew all men. And the deity of Jesus Christ is seen here once again, it's been mentioned already in the songs and what Frank said earlier, his omniscient power. He could say he knew all men. He knew just how fickle we are. How easily swayed we are. And as Barnes notes, he knew how easily they might be turned against him by the Jewish leaders. And how unsafe he would be if they would be moved to sedition and tumult. He knew these things. He knew that these people were going to be turned. That now they're crying out, Hosanna, here he is, the son of David. And in the next breath, in their fickleness, they turned against him, convinced by the Jewish leaders 
to cry out, crucify him. The Lord Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. The incarnate Son. Emmanuel, God with us. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. He is the omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful God and creator of mankind. He is intimately acquainted with all the ways and the thoughts of men. The good, if there are any, and the bad. He knows the wickedness and the deceitfulness of our hearts. He knows our hypocrisies. He knows not only those things we do and think in public, but also those that are hidden and those things that are done in the dark. And within the household of God, he knows the difference between those who truly follow him and those empty professors whose lips speak well of him and yet whose hearts remain hard to his gospel. He knows when self-appointed leaders manipulate others under the pretense of caring for their souls in order to gain financially. He knows these things intimately and he is acquainted with every thought and every desire of wickedness in the hearts of man. He knows it all because he knew all men. Jeremiah 17 verse 10 says, I the Lord search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. In 1 Kings 8.39 Then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Matthew 9 verse 4 In the healing of the paralytic Jesus saying he says but Jesus knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Just proof after proof of who Jesus is and his deity and his omnipotence and his omniscience, his all-knowing. He knows, even in the crowd, as those people brought this paralytic to him who were questioning him in their hearts, he knew the thoughts of men. He knew all men. But he knew what was in man. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 10. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought far off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before, you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? 
Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, Hades, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Psalm 1 verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Just a comment from John Gill. He says, He knows their persons as they are his father's choice. His gift of them to him, his own purchase, and as called by his grace, and so as to distinguish them at the last day and give up the full account of every one of them to his father. He knows the worst of them, the sin that dwells in them, their daily infirmities, their secret personal sins, their family sins, both of omission and commission, and their church sins, all which are committed in the house of God, and takes notice of them, so as to resent them and chastise them for them. He knows the best of them, their graces, their faith, hope, love, patience, humility, self-denial. And he knows their good works, and all their weaknesses and their wants. He knows all nominal professors, on what basis they take up their profession, and what trust they place in it. He can distinguish between grace and mere profession, and discern the secret lusts which such indulge, and the springs and progress of their apostasy. He knew all these men, that upon seeing his miracles professed at this time to believe in him. He knew the hypocrisy and dissimulation of some of them, and he knew the notions that they had of a temporal Messiah, and the temporal views which they had in believing in him, and their design to set him up as a temporal, temporal prince, as some afterwards would have done. Knew the flashy affections of others, who were like John's hearers, that were pleased for a while. He knew what sort of faith it was they believed in him with, that it would not hold long, nor they continue with him. For he knew not only all persons, but all things. Friends, there is no escaping God. Not for anyone. We can deny his existence. We can, as is very prevalent in this day and age in which we live, we can, we can choose our own truth. We can choose our own truth to suit our hatred of submission. Our hatred of accountability. And we can choose our own desired lifestyle. We can say that we believe in some higher power and trust that whoever or whatever it is will be so loving 
that no judgment or punishment will come for anyone. We can believe those things. We can believe that we will be reincarnated until we reach the highest point of learning in the human existence. We can take the stance that if we just love one another and do good to one another, that the world's problems will eventually heal by themselves. We can believe that. We can believe that the Bible is just an old book written thousands of years ago by a whole range of religious fanatics with little or no relevance for today. But let me ask, let me ask this question. Does believing in fairies make them real? No. Does believing or willing away an illness heal the body? No. Does denying the power of electricity running through a live wire protect you from its shock? Absolutely not. Believing in God, listen to this, believing in God doesn't make him any more real and not believing doesn't remove him from existence. Many times I'm preaching in the open air and I've had people come to me and say, but I don't believe in God. So what? What does that mean? Because the way they say it makes it seem to, to, to them that if I don't believe in him, then I'm protected from him. If I don't believe in him, he's not there. If I don't believe in him, he's just under the carpet somewhere. It's almost like they convince themselves that my belief stops his existence. Yeah. And I says to them, it makes no difference what you believe. Your belief in the fact that God doesn't exist means nothing. Just like it doesn't make no difference if you believe in theories, don't make them real. Not believing in God or believing in God. If my, does, does my believing in God make him more real? He was absolute. He hasn't changed from that time where he was in the eternities past. In all the eternities that we can't comprehend. Before time began, before even one thing was created, God is no more real, no more powerful then than he is now. No more real now because there are millions of people who believe in him than he was before people existed. Yeah. Our belief in some sense makes no difference to him and his reality. We cannot disbelieve God out of existence. You believe what you want. You can believe that when you die, you're just going to go back into some pool of energy from which you came from. But all sorts of conversations. You can believe that the earth was created by a mix of chemicals that blew up and out came perfection. I mean, for me, it takes more faith to believe in that. Than it, than it takes to believe in a creator, an author, 
can believe whatever you want to believe. So when you die and you find yourself stood before God, what are you going to say? Well, I didn't think you were real, sir. I'm not going to cut it. I'm not going to cut it. Gives a believer such peace and such joy that the God of heaven and earth knows everything there is to know about them. See, if you stand here today as a believer, he knows everything. He does if you're an unbeliever as well, by the way. But he knows everything about you. The secret sins that you harbour, or maybe at times find yourself uh, unable to resist, or fighting to resist. The mind, the thoughts, the intentions, the grappling with your faith at times, your disbelief and doubt at times, but also that trust that He alone has given you in Him. He knows everything. And yet through Christ and his work on the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection. And our trust that he has paid the price for our sin and saved us from it and the just wrath of God. We're loved by him. We are his own treasured possession. We are his adopted sons. We are in his family now, and we're in his family forever. That's where we are. God knows everything about me, and that's where I still stand. He knows the worst of me. He knows the best of me, which is probably about that big. He knows the worst of me, which is the rest of me. And he knows the best and the worst of you. But if you trust in Christ this morning... You are his, and he is yours, now and forever. So that gives you peace. Yes, he knows it all, but I'm his, and he is mine, and I trust in him and his righteousness and my salvation. And I can live, and I can be at peace, and I can have hope knowing that it isn't rest in me and the way I live. I want to live righteously. I want to live holy. Should those that have been saved sin any longer? May it never be. I don't want to live that way, but sometimes I find that fight happening within me. I want to do that right, but I just find myself doing that wrong. Romans 7. I want to live right, but there's a law, there's this power working within me, my body that's dead, that just craves to sin. But the spirit that is in me is life due to righteousness. That is a hope that can't be bought. (coughs) But there's a but, isn't there? Because the Lord Jesus Christ knows those who don't believe just as well. And he still knows your sin. And he still knows your rejection. And he knows your hatred. And he knows your lack of submission. And your lack of of trust. He knows everything about you too. And like the warning to the Israelites in the Exodus, if you are not found to be covered by the blood of the Lamb, you'll die. 
He said to them, even the Israelites, make sure that you kill the lamb in the way I've told you to kill it, to eat it, to leave none till morning, to not break a bone of its body, cook it with bitter herbs, do all these things the way I've told you to do it, take its blood, dip it in hyssop, painted on the lintel of the door and the side posts. When I see the blood, a destroyer will pass by. Are you covered in the blood of Christ this morning? Because if you are, the destroyer passes you by. And let me tell you this, he'll not circle around to you again. But if you don't believe, if you've rejected Christ, and you're not covered by his blood, he's coming. And you might think now, because you're alive, because your life's good and it's going well, like in the Bible, where is he? Where is this God? Surely he's late. They mock. But the day is coming. That if we're not found to be covered by his blood... There's only one way that that will finish, and that is in death for all eternity. And once there in that place of hell and destruction and terror where the worm dies not and the gnashing of teeth and the weeping, like Charles Spurgeon says, you'll look up and you'll see it in the fire. Eternity. Eternity. And when a million years have gone by, you'll still see that. There's no end. No end to the glory for the saints. No end to the terror for the sinner. There's only one way to become a saint. And that's to put your trust in Christ and to be covered by his blood. That is what I commend you to do this morning if you don't know him. If you do, what a hope you have. What a beauty it is to know that God knows everything about you. And yet you are his because you trust him. Because he saved you. Because you have his righteousness. But if you don't, you're going to leave here naked. Unclothed. Yeah. Uncovered. And that's why you'll find, you'll find yourself when you stand before him. There'll be no pleading the fifth. Did you know my son? That would be the question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the discerner of the hearts of men. Thank you, Lord, this morning that every heart in this room is known by you. Every secret, every darkness, every good thought, every bad, every intent to sin, every intent not to sin, everything that we are, Lord, is known by you. That you can discern every thought of our hearts, every desire, every hope, every wickedness. And I thank you, Lord God, this morning, that if we are in Jesus Christ, if we know him, if we know you, Lord, this morning, that we do not fear, we need not fear the judgment of God. For you know it all, and yet your blood has covered us. And we stand with the pure robes of righteousness before the throne and the bar of God, and we hear that cry that gives us such relief of not guilty. And the hammer comes down. And yet, Lord God, you know if there are any amongst us this morning that have not put their trust in you, they have their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, oh God, if that's the case, have mercy. Open the eyes of the blind. Cause them to know their sin. Cause them to cry out in repentance to you and to put their trust and faith in you from this point on. 
and to live a godly life, to live for you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you save them? That's your prerogative and according to your will. Lord, we do pray for them. Thank you, Lord God. And we ask these things for your glory. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.